Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Tim Kraska, co-founder and CEO of Einblick. Born out of research from MIT and Brown, Einblick is a visual data computing platform that provides the fastest way for organization to understand the past, predict the future, and make the best data-driven decisions for their business. Their customers already include a large luxury German car brand, DARPA, and a global internet service provider. Einblick has recently raised $6 million in seed funding from Amplify Partners, Flybridge, and Samsung Electronics' next venture capital arm, and has just recently come out of stealth mode. I'm really interested in talking to Tim today because not only is the entire founding team mostly European, but they're also the first company I've had on my show that has come from academia. So I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about this process of going from academia to entrepreneurship. Anyway, welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Tim, the first question, and I'm sure you've got this a number of times, is that you were a professor. And you've been a professor at MIT, and then from there, you decided to become an entrepreneur. So tell me a little bit about how that journey went for you. Sure. Actually, I'm still a professor at MIT. I'm currently on leave for the company. Many universities offer you that you can take a leave for a certain amount of time to like <laughs> either go and do research in another place or... More, more often, you also see people doing companies or going in industry, like for, like in my case, up to three years. So, how do you balance your time? I mean, a company is like a full time job. Right now, officially, I'm not paid by MIT because I'm on the full. There's always some obligations you still have with your own research group. And it's very hard, for example, to say like, okay, now I run only the company and all my PhD students are like on their own. So I still spend some time at MIT, just like mainly to meet the students, to run my research group. So when I return, that I can continue with them. But my majority of my time clearly goes to the startup right now. So how long have you been doing the startup? We started officially this year uh, in January. So actually, we raised all the funds already last year. We just announced them now when we were coming out of stealth. It had been pretty pretty fun and uh, quite a change so far. Academia and research and being a professor is very different from being an entrepreneur. You've now done it for a year. What is it that you have discovered about yourself in terms of where your skills lie and what you still need to learn to become a better entrepreneur? That's an excellent question. I think from the team we have, and including me, we are all very, very technical. And so the technical side, we, like essentially, we know that we can do it. And of course, there are feature requests and people want different things sometimes, but like there's nothing anymore that would say, like, okay, we know not technically how to achieve that. It's a quite a steep learning experience on the more business side from how do you run sales? What should be the right messaging? How do you even convey your advantages against other products? This has been a great learning experience so far. And I'm also impressed by all the people we are interacting with and how professional they are and how good they are in that side of the story. 
And do you have any support to help you with these business aspects? And can you talk a little bit about what kind of supports you gained from the university or you had to look somewhere else for that support? So like the university there, they provide support. We didn't take a lot of advantage of it because our investors are just great. Amplify Partners provided us with a lot of support. They put us in touch with various people in the area. And essentially, they filled all the gaps we had on the business side. And we got all the on advisors from the same industry on the business side from them. And some of them invested even in the company. Some others we have on a consulting role. And this is how we like, were supported by them. Also, what really worked very well in our case is the first year we spent mainly on product development. So there was not a, a need, for example, a full marketing person or even a full financial person. They, they would have nothing to do at our stage. And so like, they were really good in saying, like, okay, you can hire this person, let's say, on an hourly basis and they come on board. And I highly recommend doing that because there's more you can free up time and have your team focus on the things which actually matter. It's, it's crucial. Tell me a little bit about your founding team. I know a lot of you have European roots. So talk to me about the founding team and whether there's any plans for setting up something in Europe with Einblick. Yes, so the original founding team is all the PhD students and postdocs which were involved in the research project. And they just happen to be from Europe and one from China. We don't have a single American original research team. And this is not changing. We are, we are hiring across the board. Originally, there's a strong focus on particular Germany and Switzerland. The team, in the beginning, we created this research project roughly six years ago. And everybody working on that decided to join the company. So this was our founding team. And now we are growing and we are actually considering if we should do an office in Europe. One of the core reasons for that, I think there's a lot of talent there in cities like Berlin or Munich or the UK as well. And like this visa situation over the last four years wasn't that simple. So it's very hard to tap into that pool without having a, a presence in Europe directly. So the reason you'd want to do something in Europe, A, you have your roots and B, you think there's a lot of good talent that you can... Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about Einblick. At what point in time did you feel that Einblick could be a company and could be commercialized? Could you tell me how it was born? So it started out as a pure research project. The research project got a lot of attention from like at conferences. So we won, for example, the best demo award at like one of the large database conferences. And I think it was after two years already, we were approached by the first VC asking us if we want to do something. And this was like, must have been in 2016. And back then, we were not simply not ready yet. And just like we, we felt the software is not at the stage. But shortly after, we actually started to deploy the first versions of the software at various companies. And just to see if it's actually usable. And we got the feedback from them for the first version we developed. Based on the feedback, they actually created the second version. And there were still a lot of research challenges. And the second version, we actually deployed at more companies to see what they say. And we again got the feedback back. And the feedback this time, in, in contrast to the first revision, 
felt more like, oh yeah, now they're doing feature requests rather than we need to figure out something fundamentally new research-wise. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where we said, okay, it's actually getting to a point where it makes much more sense to spin out the company because there's interest from industry in using it. And it mainly becomes down to adding new features, expanding the functionality rather than changing the core engine of the system or the, or the way the visualizations work and other things. So that was definitely the point. And then like everybody on the team also expressed very strong interest in doing a startup. So it, it became a no-brainer. Was everybody on the team wanting to do a startup? The entire team joined. There was not a single exception. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what Einblick does in terms of use cases for which this solution provides value? And who are the ideal customers for whom Einblick solution makes sense? So we are a prescriptive analytics company. And what that means, I see that analytics happens so far in two stages. And this Einblick, we hope to enter the third stage. So the first one is what some people refer to as descriptive analytics, which is mainly concerned with the question about what happened in the past. And tools like Tableau, Click, there are a whole bunch of them. They make it extremely easy to understand past data by creating the prettiest visualizations you can think of, and then compose several visualizations into a dashboard. So this was the first wave of analytics. The current ongoing one is more focused on predictive analytics, which is forward-looking and asking the question of what might happen in the future. And you have tools like Data Robert, Altrix. Again, there, there are a few of them. And their goal is to uh, build the best possible model. So what we are actually arguing for is that in many cases, you neither care about the best possible visualization nor do you care about the best possible model. What you actually care about is the best possible decision. And in some cases, that might might mean that you have to create a visualization. In some other cases, it might mean that you have to create a predictive model, which you then do something with, right, and forecast it. And then again, there's this whole additional set of tools, which are for decision support, like what-if analysis, optimization, constraint solvers, which are helping you to decide what to do in order to influence the future. And what we are doing with Einblick is we we say, okay, we want to create a platform for decision-making. And given the decision-making requires all three sets, descriptive, predictors, as well as prescriptive analytics, this last part of this what-if analysis, you need the tool which integrates them in a coherent way. And that is what we are doing. So it's a platform for decision-makers, a very collaborative environment to help you to decide what to do in order to influence the future, which can mean figuring out the right budget for the marketing campaign. To give you one concrete example where prescriptive analytics can help is let's assume you're trying to optimize your sales force. So if you want to optimize your sales force, a simple thing you could do is look at your, the performance of each salesperson in your team and you simply fire the worst performing one. So mm. this could be just looking at past data. That's probably not the best thing to do. Maybe more clever and better would be that you predict on how much a given salesperson would bring in over the next, let's say, year, two years, three years. And based on this forecast of the potential impact the salesperson might have, you make a decision on, for example, how who you want to promote and who you want to fire. But then... Even further than that, if you let's assume you fire a person, a worst performing salesperson, 
is maybe this person also takes a whole bunch of deals with them. And in these cases, you need to consider this impact of your action on the entire organization. And now you're in the space of like what-if analysis. You want to model out, okay, if I actually let this person go, maybe he takes the following five customers with him, and this overall still has a negative impact on my company rather than actually I optimize my sales force. Right? And Einblick provides the tools to do all three of these things, just like to go quickly through understanding the past, predicting the future, as well as then modeling different scenarios so that you can make an informed decision. So what are the prerequisites companies need to have to be able to use your tool? So our tool is like very easily deployed. You can have on-premise deployment or, or public cloud deployment. And the only thing we are focusing mainly on structured and semi-structured data. So as long as you have the data you're working with in some form of a table format, it's actually very, very easy to use it. We also built now in the latest commercial version, I'm not in the academic prototype, we have a, like we call it a visual interface over data frames. So you can do a lot of typical data manipulations directly in our platform, which further lowers the burden of getting started with our solution. So the trigger was really the interest from the industry. How did you get that interest from the industry? Were you contacting them and telling them about what you had or was the universities helping in some way? How did that connection happen? So there were uh, three distinct events. The first one was just we were very interested in people trying it out. And so we had early deployments of the software like IGT and Adobe. So this was all as part of the academic prototype and came mainly through the university because there was an existing connection there and somebody saw a demo and said, like, oh, yeah, I would love to try it out. So this was the first uh, stage of engagement. So the second and third big one came through some press coverage we received last year in 2019. So we, we had a demo booth at Estrada and a lot of people asked us, hey, oh, I love that system. I would love to try it out. And we got into the news. Somebody saw our videos and we, we were featured by TechCrunch. And then even more people asked, oh, yeah, I would love to deploy that the software and see if I can use it at, at the company. And so we did some of these deployments based on that, still with the academic prototype. And yeah, these requests came mainly from the outside. There was just pull there and we decided, oh yeah, this, at least there seems to be a demand. I want to talk about the main topic for today's podcast, which is the research to commercialization process. So once you decided that there's something in what you've built that has commercial value, what is the process you had to go through to take something that you've developed in university as part of your academic profession and actually try to commercialize that? Before I start answering the question, I'd just like to point out that this process varies heavily between different universities and also between different countries because the, the law like partially dictates this as well as the university rules. In the case of MIT, what it required was first to do an IP disclosure. So essentially, you register your invention. In our case, it was just the source code of our software with the university so that they are aware of this is like an invention which happened. And then we did an exclusive IP agreement with the company. So like the company was created, and then we created an IP agreement 
with the company to get an exclusive commercial license for that software. And so this is the, the step we took. MIT is, is good in the sense of that they really streamlined that process. So they, are, they have now a standard procedure for that. Uh, also, they have a standard equity amount the university gets for this exclusive, uh, exclusive IP agreement. But because it's all standardized, it makes the whole process so much faster and like um, and easier and less stressful. So who owns the IP for you've developed? In the U.S., everything every student does and every professor does is actually owned by the university. The IP is owned by MIT. But the contract we do is exclusive license to the software we developed. And mm. so meaning that now the company owns the license and the company is the only entity who can commercialize. And how does this differ in Cambridge or, or any of the universities in Europe? Do you have any idea of that? It's, it's very different. So like it's a fine, no, it depends on if you are in Switzerland versus like or the UK or Germany or Italy. The German model so far, I know, is just like I think the... So best of my knowledge, and I might be wrong here, is that the professor owns the IP when he writes any code, but PhD students hired by the university, actually the IP is owned by the university, so it's a little bit more complicated. And in many cases, they also don't have standard procedures in like transferring the IP to, a, let's say, a company. So everything has to be negotiated from scratch. It makes the process uh, just longer and a little bit more complicated. I really hope that given that more and more startups are coming actually out of academia, that these processes will be simplified even further. Right, right. So what should other people in your position in universities across Europe be mindful of? You've gone through this process now. What is some advice you would give to them? There are actually several things. On one hand, I think it's pretty important that everybody who wants to do it is aware of conflict of interest rules. So like in the moment we did the company, I essentially stopped all research in that area at MIT. And mm -hmm. I did that so that nobody of my students here at MIT, which I still have some, thinks like they're doing work for the company. So that it creates a conflict of interest. Some universities are pretty strict about it. They also have like panels which review like any conflict of interest case. MIT has one of these panels. But in, in general, I would be very aware of that because like misusing students for the interests of the company should never happen. And even the perception of it shouldn't happen. So that's one, one important aspect. Another one is I strongly recommend to leverage the academic playing field as much as possible. I think academia is great because it gives you so much freedom and no time pressure. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a great environment to figure out if something is even wanted by industry. Right? Is, is there interest from industry in using your invention, your software, whatever it is? And I would always recommend that don't do the spin out before you figure out how much interest there is. So essentially do already the discovery process as part of the, the academic research project, maybe even get like some people to use it and see what they say and still keep it as a research project. And then only when it becomes down to like the research stops, it's like it becomes feature engineering, then do the company instead. You talked about the conflict of interest. You were working in university with probably lots of PhD students. So when you 
decided to now commercialize it and you've set up a company, what happens to those students who are working on it as part of their PhD project or just their academic work? How did you make it so that it can be clean? In our case, it was very simple because every single student up front decided to join the company. Essentially, it was a super clean cut. As all, everybody moved over from market, from the university to the, to the startup. I see. So that makes it easy. There are cases I'm aware of where this is not as easy. And let's assume, like hypothetically, I would still have a student who would like to do research in the same area what the company is doing. I would normally strongly suggest to the student or even require that he changes advisors just to make sure that he has like another person to talk to and that there's no conflict of interest really in place or even the perception of the conflict. So you've mentioned two things now. You've talked about conflict of interest and really sort of being part of research and academia to a point where you're starting to talk about more features before you decide that there's commercial potential. Anything else? So those I consider definitely the, the most important aspects of it. I think the other thing I would advise people of doing, there also has to be a plan of who is leading the company in the long run and how to grow the business side. So earlier you can think about that. I think the more useful it is. And then there are a lot of like really smaller things, I guess more common for like every startup. Uh, like for example, office space. Like in my case, it was pretty important to me that the office space we have is close in close proximity to MIT so that I can more easily go back and forth and don't waste time. But those are like little things which are on top. How long does it take to actually set up this commercial entity of something that's come out of academia and research? What does the timeline look like? Usually it shouldn't take that long, but again, it depends highly on the place. So it MIT, they've standardized a lot of the processes by now, and I think it's doable as, as quickly as in two months. In case of Einblick, it actually took longer because there was one aspect of the agreement which wasn't uh, standard, and that is we had two universities involved, MIT and Brown. And so how that worked is like actually MIT became the lead, and the company did a license agreement with MIT, and then MIT. MIT made a subcontract with Brown separately, and that part took definitely more time. So I think we started the conversation, I would say, almost six months ago before it then eventually happened. So that's from the entrepreneur side. What about the investors? Do the investors need to be aware or do something different because of the commercialization coming from academia before they invest? Uh, not really. From the investor perspective, uh, in the moment the IP agreement is in place, it just becomes like as any other company. I think the only thing which potentially complicates it a little bit is like timing. So, for example, the investors might not want to put the money in before the IP agreement is finalized, but this can easily be figured out. This was never a problem in our case. Okay. And were the investors also something that the university? helped you to find or is that something that you did on your own? In the case of Einblick, we did it on our own. I know that the university 
has like plenty of resources to help us. It just happened to be because of the publicity we got through this like publication last year in TechCrunch, the the Strata booth we did, and the and even other talks we gave that we had already a lot of interest from investors in the software in general. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of hard time to to get meetings and, and give demos and other things. And then in the end, he settled for the investors, which we thought provides us with the best possible support. It sounds to me like a great way of starting a company based on research. If you could do it again, would you do anything differently? Would you say this was the best route in terms of developing Eindling? In many ways, I think like academia is a great point to start companies because you can try more risky ideas in a very safe environment. And that's all what academia is about, right? Trying things which are not necessarily the things you would do immediately in industry because they're further out. And if one of them turns out to work, it's just like like it's a natural thing often to do a startup out of it. The thing I probably would do differently is, so what we did is the round of deployments of the software. And then based on it, we, we created the commercial version, which we are now selling. I think we, we could have actually stayed even longer in academia if necessary in order to develop some of the features. That said, since we created the, the startup, progress has been accelerated a lot. The speed we are going now compared to and you only have PhD students working on it, and they also want to write papers. It's, it's a very different pace. So in the end, I would even don't, wouldn't do that part of it differently. But I think it's an interesting question. When is the right moment to spin something out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's next for you? You've just raised $6 million in seed funding. What are some of the milestones you have for yourself before you go for your next round of funding? Currently, we started our founding customer program. So we are looking for companies who would like to try out Einblick and get their feedback and develop it further and and see on if we really nailed now the product market fit. Mm -hmm. And that's like mainly what we will be doing over the next year. And I would love to have more European companies being part of the founding company program. So what are some of the characteristics what kind of company should get in touch with you if they're interested in being part of the customer program for the founding customer program i think any company who has like business analysts and data scientists and making data-driven decisions would be a good fit for us it's really data-driven decisions based on relational data data which fits into tables or which involves text, I think we are a really good platform for that. We also created some other unique features, which uh, we haven't seen in other platforms yet. For example, we, we have a very unique way that you can take insight you generate using our platform, export it to PowerPoint, but not as a figure, not as a picture. It's exported in shapes so that you can later on animate the visualization you have as well as update it. And those are things, if you're struggling with that part of it alone, I think like our platform provides a unique value proposition for you. I want to also talk a little bit about the team itself. How have you managed to structure your team of founders? How did you figure out what equity different people have 
in the team. Was that hard to do? It's certainly hard to do. Basically, what we did is we tried to find a balance between past contribution and future contribution to the project. It's it's also very interesting because investors often like to more consider the future contributions rather than the past because that's what they care about. And so what, what we did is we tried to get a balance between them. So we looked on how long were the team members on the project already, how much time over the last couple of years as part of the research project they put into the project, as well as what was their contribution so far. And based on that, we came up with some number. And then, again, we made a large portion of the stock they received vested so that they have a strong incentive also to stay on into mm. the future. It's not an easy process. In the end, I think we found a good compromise which made everybody happy at the company. And was how did you decide that you would be the CEO? How did that happen? So it was natural to some degree because I took care of all the finding the funding and the main engagements, the, the whole management of the process. At the same time, I also say, at least right now, my plan is still to go, to go back to academia. So like, eventually we need to find a, another CEO for the company and there we already have candidates we are considering. And I was very upfront with my investors about that. I think there's like no hiding behind the bush because it's, this topic will come up eventually. And I told them, at least in the beginning, hey, this is my plan. Of course, things might change. And, <laughs> and I also know another professor at another startup right now who actually used to be a professor and after two years decided, oh, no, I'm not going back. And now he stayed on as a CEO. So why do you think you will go back? It's an excellent question. And sometimes I wonder myself. <laughs> <laughs> They're completely different worlds, I guess. You have not been here long enough to know whether this is something you would see yourself long term or whether you want to go back to academia. But it sounds like you've given it some thought. I have to say, I enjoy it much, much more than I thought I would. Hmm. The whole process actually has been great, like every single aspect of it. So at the same time, that said, I, I like the amount of freedom the university provides and like trying out entirely new ideas. And so it's a very different thing, but both have definitely the, the benefits and also the downsides. So that's a question which I'm not asking myself right now, but I definitely really enjoy being at Eimlich for the moment. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring this to a close and just ask you, a little bit about yourself. Do you see yourself moving back to Europe anytime at all? <laughs> That's a much, much harder question than <laughs> even the, the other one. It's like I, my original plan was to stay only for one year in the US, and now it has already been 10 almost. No, yeah. it has been 10. Yeah, it's like time passed by very quickly. The the strange thing over the time is just like I always say that neither Germany feels like home anymore. So mm -hmm. I'm originally from Germany, but neither does the US. I lived in too many places and I see a lot of benefits for each of the individual places and also the downsides. And so I have a very different attitude by now. For example, there are things I absolutely love about Germany. And then there are other aspects where I say, oh yeah, this is, this is not what I like what I would prefer. And the same is true for the uh, US. In the long run, I haven't made up my mind yet. It's 
it might happen, it might not happen. Yeah, I cannot even give you an answer for that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, we would love to see you back in <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> side of the world. But either way, I think what you're doing with Einblick is really exciting. And I'm sure there are loads of people who are listening to this podcast that are probably going to reach out to you to maybe work with you and with your company. So great. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining me on this podcast today. And I wish you all the very best. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And this was great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.